Welcome back to another episode of Finances, and actually our last episode for season one. This will air, I believe, on December 23rd, and then season two will be back at some point in February. Today's episode is the fourth and last installment of Psychology of Money. We had some more interesting topics to, to discuss, and with me to discuss those today is Mike Callahan, who's the Director of Wealth Management here. Eric Sacchetta, who is a financial advisor, and the one and only Joe Sacchetta, who's the managing partner. I believe Mike wanted to start us off with our first discussion, and that was around Chapter 16, which was entitled You and Me. So what's that all about, Mike? Yeah, and I think, you know, to me, so th these last few chapters are, are some of the best. I think I really like the concept in this one, especially that, you know, everybody is playing a different game, right? We kind of have this idea that Everybody who's investing in the stock market should listen to, you know, Jim Cramer, whoever it is, talk about what the right price for a stock is. Well, it totally depends on what, why you're investing in that stock, right? If you're investing for, you know, the next 30 years, well, today's price is probably a good deal regardless of wh where it is, right? If you're trying to buy it for the next two weeks, that's an entirely different thing. So this concept that there's like a, the right price for a stock out there is almost crazy because it, it, Everybody who's buying it has an entirely different objective as to why they're buying it. So nobody's going to agree on what the right price is because it all depends on what's the point of the investment. I, I also think that sometimes when people, let's say they're watching the TV, and, and I think all the commentators, especially on like CNBC, they're, they're all great. But again, everybody's got different objectives is you listen to somebody say, this person's really smart. They're really successful. They're worth a lot of money that, you know, whatever advice they're giving, that it, it must be right. But your point is it's right depending on what your circumstances are, which is why having your own plan and having a financial advisor that has things tailored to you is really important because all these people believe what they're saying, but they're not you, right? And they don't have the same time horizon and goals and objectives and and uh, that, that's Risk why tolerance. You, exactly. And I think that's a great point, Eric, that you bring around. You know, CNBC. You know, most of us have CNBC on on the television set, and for the most part, I can't speak for the rest of you, but the reason I do it is because I want to know what everybody else is watching, so that when the phone rings. Uh, I wouldn't have the TV on otherwise because what happens today in the market is really irrelevant to what we're trying to do for clients. It's all about long-term investing and putting together a financial plan that works. But like I said, I have the TV on just because I know people are watching it. And the advice I usually try to tell people is shut off the TV and go spend some time with your grandchildren, uh, you know, go for a hike or whatever it might be. Yeah, and Joe, your point about, you know, our, our strategy is more tailored to long-term investing, and that's basically what Housel said and where a lot of that disconnect is. And giving an example of, you know, stock market aside, looking back at the housing market in like 2007, there were properties going for, for astronomical values. And for somebody that was a short-term investor and looking to flip a house, that made a lot of sense, right? Because they could buy a house for, you know, $100,000 in like Florida or something in in within a few months, it will have appreciated already because just the, the sheer momentum of, of the housing market in 07 was crazy. But somebody buying a house for that price and then keeping it for five years to maybe start a family or something, it made no sense. And again, you know, that points to how everybody's playing a different game because obviously everybody knows what happened in 2008. So you have to look at what your goals are and what your intentions are and then make the decision off of that, not what everybody else is doing. Well, and to your point, I mean, that, that is almost definitionally how bu bubbles form, right? Is 
you get in these situations where people who are focused on short-term profits drive up the prices to the point where people who are looking for long-term profits start to think that they're doing something wrong, right? And, and then they start to look at investments not as long-term vehicles, but as, well, I bought it just because it keeps going up. And then when you buy it, it does keep going up for some period of time, but eventually that can't last forever. And then you get the housing bubble pop or the dot-com bubble or, or any kind of bubble throughout history, essentially. You know, and it's the important thing is to remember why you're investing in the first place and what your time horizon is and understanding what you're investing in. I mean, I, you know, back in early 2000 or even 99, everybody kind of looked at Warren Buffett and said, oh, he lost his touch because he wasn't buying any technology stocks. And his point was, well, I don't understand them. So if I don't understand the company and I don't understand why it's trading at the price it is, why would I want to buy it? And sure enough, two years later, suddenly everybody went from thinking he was out of touch to thinking he was some sort of, you know, visionary, and he hadn't changed anything. <laughs> All he did was just keep investing the exact same way he'd always invested. Years, years ago, people would almost use that as an indication of something they should invest in. If they don't understand that it, it must be good because, you know, the people out there are probably smarter than you or I, so maybe I should invest in that. I don't understand it, but let's invest in it. It must be good. It's new. In any bubble, I would never assume that everybody out there is smarter than anybody else, right? I mean, literally yesterday I saw on Twitter, Somebody was complaining to customer service at Robinhood, which is an online trading platform, because he was trying to buy Airbnb stock and he, he, the site was frozen. And the problem was it was Sunday. And the <laughs> stock market is not open on Sunday. So nice. you can't buy Airbnb stock on a Sunday. Yeah. And anybody who knows anything about investing would know that that obviously you can't buy a stock on the weekend. Yeah. But he's complaining to customer service and trying to buy a stock that just IPO'd, which is one of the most you know dangerous things you can do. And, and didn't even know that the market was closed. I, I was thinking kind of related. One other thing is, you know, people have always kind of done this, but years ago when there wasn't the internet and all this stuff, people would invest in, in companies that they use or did business with or whatever, but you would have to do some research to kind of find out what's the value and you, you would have to do some homework. The challenge now is someone says, oh, I have to get in on Airbnb or I have to get in on DoorDash or I have to get in on one of these IPOs because it's an innovative company. I, I use it. I think it's going to be the future. But the problem is if it's already valued at a price that's far beyond the value of like the entire industry that it's in, just because you use it and all your friends uses it doesn't make it a good investment. Well, I think he says in the book, right, in, in, two, in 1999, Cisco, which is a company that makes routers and you know all the infrastructure for the internet, Cisco stock rose 300% to $60 a share. And an economist pointed out that at the implied growth rate at that price, Cisco would have to become larger than the entire U.S. economy within 20 years. So to Eric's point, great company, did exactly what everybody thought they were going to do and you know was the standard for an internet infrastructure for the next decade or two. But the stock was just a terrible value, right? Because it was just way too overpriced. That's the dot-com bust of the early 2000s. Everybody was just investing in things because they kept going up in price. You know, the P.E. ratios were off the charts. Many of the companies had negative earnings, so there's not even a positive P.E. But just because everything kept going up, people kept buying it, and it just all crashed pretty quickly in the early 2000s. I'm not making any predictions, but there might be bubbles in individual stocks, which is why you diversify, which we talk about on the podcast all the time. If you're in a diversified portfolio and one of these stocks that we've talked about is one of 500 stocks or something in that fund, if it keeps appreciating, you get a little piece of the appreciation. If it 
crashes because what we're saying is the valuation is too high, it doesn't affect the overall fund or all of the funds in your portfolio to a level that it disrupts your disrupts your whole financial plan. So instead of saying, are we in this big bubble or what does that mean I should do something with my portfolio? The answer is the same as it always is diversification. Some of these stocks we're talking about are probably in the funds that we invest in, but they're a small piece. Right. And to, to circle back to, to Mike and Joe's point about Cisco and, you know, how they had a crazy valuation, it it kind of ties back to, you know, you don't you don't know about it. So you believe everything. You know, we all have an incomplete view of the world and we try to fill in the gaps with kind of just, you know, what what makes sense in our head. But that's not always the true case. So, you know, back in the 90s, when you see this crazy, crazy momentum in Cisco, it's like, well, everybody else must know something that I don't know. So I'm going to fill in fill in the gap and say, well, they know what they're talking about. So I'll jump on that train. And that's when you get into danger. Right. So, you know, it just ties back to we all have to admit that we're not perfect or masters at everything in in when you when you tell yourself that story in your head that's when you can get into tr some trouble with investing well like we have talked about before right is you know all these different things that we do uh, that our brains do to trick us right and it's essentially confirmation bias right is that we interpret things to basically justify an opinion we already have right so and it's just natural instead of going into everything with an open mind if we buy cisco stock well suddenly we're looking just for information that confirms that that was a good decision you know, instead of objectively looking at the situation and to, you know, like Joe said, that's why back then it was people didn't look at the the, the tech stocks and say, man, these valuations are insane. There's no way we're ever going to live up to this. They were looking at it saying, well, the world's changed. Right. And we, we're, we're using different metrics now and PEs don't matter. And now it's about, you know, growth rate and all these different things. And we kind of lied to ourselves to kind of justify what was already happening because we nobody wanted the stock market to go down. Nobody wanted it to crash. So we just justified it in our own heads. I, I also think that to try to tie into one of his next chapters or points, he talks about the, the seduction of pessimism. There's also kind of like a reverse point related to what we're talking about, which is you say, well, if, if people are seduced to pessimism, why are, why are they also seduced into these stocks that are going up through the roof that, that you're not paying attention to? I think it comes back to us as humans there's a default to pessimism because you're trying to protect yourself, right? That's human behavior. You want to protect yourself, protect your family. At the same time, when you see these stocks based on like new trends taking off, you also want to protect yourself by not being the one person that missed out. You know what I mean? You don't, you don't want to be the one, you know, the one person that missed the boat. So all of a sudden the pain is now attached to not participating in that. So you're right. I mean, the chapter talks about, you know, it's called the seduction of pessimism. I think, I think to some extent, it's almost the seduction of extremes, right? right. It's, it's extremely pessimistic views tend to be embraced, but also extremely optimistic views. Like you say, it's, it's, you know, if you, if you write a book about how the Dow is going to a hundred thousand, people are going to read the book, right? I mean, it, it, right. and, and we, I think we all know, or we all would agree that eventually the Dow is going to a hundred thousand, right? It's just a matter of when. Um, but again, it's, it's, if you just write a, a story about how everything's just going to be status quo for the next five years, nobody's going to read the story because it's boring. I, I thought a very, very interesting quote that I read in that particular set, chapter, to kind of paraphrase it. He said, uh, progress happens too slowly to notice, but set, setbacks happen too quickly to ignore. So in other words, stocks gradually go up and people really aren't necessarily paying too much attention to that. 
But as soon as something happens so that it goes down dramatically, everybody's ready to panic, and that's where the, the, the psychology of money comes in. Everybody's looking to get out because everybody's aware of this negative thing. They don't really pay attention to the fact that it just gradually grows. Well, and I think it's just the information we're exposed to, too, right? Something negative happens financially or otherwise in its headline news all over the nightly news. You know, it's in the newspapers the next morning, everything like that. But the the slow, gradual, optimistic progress is never talked about because it's not attention-grabbing, right? Like over the last century, the the stock market has increased 17,000-fold. But nobody likes to talk about that because it's just slowly grinded forward. It's it's not sexy to talk about, right? But you know, you talk about this this company that has a big lawsuit or something, and you know they they shed fifty percent of the valuation of the company in one trading day, and it's like that's the big headline news that everybody likes to focus on, and and that's what everybody's afraid of happening. But it, again, if you're playing a long term game, optimism is sort of what you got to lean back on, and you have to almost, I don't want to say ignore it, but just kind of push aside the pessimism and, and kind of, you know, hope for the best. Well, I'll say two things. I mean, one is that it goes back to the first thing we talked about, right? Which is people are playing different games. You have to remember that when you turn on the news and, you know, all these, the headlines and all the stuff you talk about, they're not even in the same, remotely in the same game as you, right? Your game is to be a long-term investor to make money. Their game is to sell advertising. You know, so their game is, has nothing to even do with the stock market or investing. It's literally to get people to watch their program or read their news story. And to Matt's point, you know, big headlines, mostly pessimistic, are what people pay attention to. I mean, it's the prime example is CNBC. Every time the market goes down some significant amount, and there's not a set amount, but anytime there's, you know, stuff going on in the market, they suddenly have this special every night at 7 o'clock called Markets in Turmoil. And the only reason they do it is because they know when people are scared, they're going to tune into the show. Yeah. If they just had a regular show every night at seven, nobody would watch it. Because what would you call it? You know, market went up today. It, it, <laughs> nobody cares. Well, they, they've got a, I think it was in this book or maybe another book I'm listening to as well. But it's like, you know, you, you think about the fact that like if they're the equivalent of the weatherman, they're doing the same thing. They need people to watch the show. But mo most days it's partly cloudy, partly sunny, whatever the temp, you know, the weather is for that time of year. But they have to make that exciting. And most of the time the market goes up 1% or less or down 1% or less. And they have to make that they have to make that exciting so that people are willing to watch what really is almost no news. They have to make it into news. Well, and it's funny because, like you say, when the market goes up, people think, well, that's what it's supposed to do. You know, and when the market goes down, they think something's wrong. But on a daily basis, it's roughly 50-50. You know, right. if you look out over uh, the past 100 years, the market was up roughly 50% of the time and down 50% of the time on any, any given day. So, you know, down or up, neither one of them is wrong or right. It's just that's just how markets work. Sometimes they go up, sometimes they go down. Over long periods of time, they go up more than they go down. I, I also say one, one last point, kind of kind of related to it is I know sometimes when the market's at the all-time high people say oh it's at an all-time high like should I be trimming back a little bit and it's like well since the last time all-time high you haven't made any money so you should stay invested for the long term but just as people call in with like that thought they also get concerned when it runs up higher and then comes back to the same point and I get excited when that happens because it's like let's say just pick a number the S&P 500 the high it's ever been is 3,600. And you're saying, oh, is that really high? If it runs up to 4,000 at some point in the near future and then comes back to this level, 
for no reason, like no news or whatever. Yeah, it got ahead of itself, but it's also proved that people are willing to get in up to 10, 12, 13% higher. That makes me feel more comfortable that it's going to continue to go higher. And it's kind of confusing what I'm saying, but like people, people get, it, it, they get anxious and proving both. that there's buyers at higher levels. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah, that's all absolutely true, guys. And, you know, we're, we're getting towards the end of the episode here in the end of discussing this book. So one thing I wanted to do was sort of go around and, and maybe each of us can say what our biggest takeaway, what resonated with us the most from this book. Um, I suppose I'll start. And that was kind of the idea that before you start investing, or even if you are investing now, you, you should really sit down and, and define the cost of realizing that success. And for investing, you know, until you until you realize the gains, it's not a dollars and cents cost because it's just it's all numbers on a piece of paper. The true cost is really the uncertainty, the fear, and the you know the possible regret if you make the wrong decision. That's what's going to weigh on you, and you know you'll potentially be up at night. So you basically have to come to terms with that and and be willing to pay it in order to be financially successful. That was that was the thing that kind of stuck out to me the most. Yeah, and I'll say, I mean, it, it's kind of somewhat similar. And, you know, at the end of the book, he summarizes some of the points that he, that he made throughout the book. And one of them says, become okay with a lot of things going wrong. You can be wrong half the time and still make a fortune. And I think that's absolutely true. I mean, people have this idea that to be good at investing, you have to get in and out at the right times and avoid every downturn and make sure you don't do anything wrong. And it, it, it's just not true. I mean, we talked about in one of the earlier podcasts that the majority of the returns over the past 100 years have come from a, a small minority of, of, of companies because the rest either didn't make it or didn't generate that much return. And the point is, if you just have a good diversified portfolio over a long period of time, you're going to do fine. You're going to accomplish everything that you set out to accomplish as an investor. You don't have to mess with it by trying to avoid every little small thing that could go wrong. Yeah. And, and to that point, in that same section, he talks about if you want to be a better investor, the single most powerful thing you can do is increase your time horizon, which is basically the amount of time in which you're going to either use the money or feel like you have to move around investments. And, you know, to Mike's point and Matt's point about all this stuff we're talking about, you know, a lot of the clients I was talking about, they were actually correct in predicting what would happen with the virus, but were incorrect in predicting what that would mean for the stock market, you know, moving forward. Right. Well, and not to, not to drag on the point, but just to add to it really quickly, you know, this an advisor named Ben Carlson, I'm, I'm getting this from him, but he did a chart that basically looked at the S&P annualized returns. When unemployment is higher than 9%, the S&P averages 24.5%. When unemployment is less than 5%, the S&P averages 3.9%. Hmm. So the point is, you know, people have this idea that things in, in real life, things could get worse. So that means the market could get worse. And in reality, it's kind of the market bottoms long before things get better. So if you're waiting for things to look better, it's going to be too late. Well, what, one quick point on that, and I know we're kind of supposed to be sticking to what we're doing here, but one, one of the things is the stock market is a forward-looking mechanism. And one of the interesting things is as we're recording this, the first person in the United States just got the vaccine a couple hours ago. The market turned when we started to realize that there was going to be liquidity and there was going to be stimulus and there was going to be all this stuff. We still had absolutely no idea that there was going to be a vaccine. Yeah. You know what I mean? We just so, knew there'd be one eventually. So we right. started to look for that point. We just didn't know when. Right. Exactly. I guess my closing thoughts are to follow up on everything that you guys have said. You know, history is just one thing after another. So something may be coming down the pike that is going to 
make the market go down. It's going to go back up. There'll be something else that comes along that makes it go down. It's going to go back up. I think the keys to the whole thing are having a high savings rate, being patient, being optimistic. <clears throat> Don't try to time the market. And to a point that was said earlier, you also have to factor in being able to sleep at night. So try to try to invest in a fashion that allows you to sleep. And if you can sleep at night, the market will take care of things for you. Yeah, that's a that's a really good closing point, Joe. And and maybe a good closing point to to tie out the whole psychology of, of money uh, series that we've been doing. Just a few housekeeping items before we, we leave. If it wasn't obvious, we were remotely recording this via Teams today, so hopefully the, the audio quality wasn't too, too bad. And as I mentioned at the beginning, this was the end of season one. So we want to thank you very much for listening, and we are looking forward to talking to you again starting sometime in February of 2021. But for now, take care and happy investing. Financers is produced and edited by Sachetta and Callahan, LLC. All disclosures are posted to our website at sachetta.com forward slash financers. S-A-C-H-E-T-T-A dot com forward slash F-I-N-E-A-N-S-W-E-R-S. Thanks for listening.